Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, episode 34, Fahrenheit 451, by Ray Bradbury. Anyway, you don't frighten me. Why should I? No reason, really. The uniform, I suppose. Most people are. Frightened, frightened of farming. This is my stop now. Mine, too. Are you an officer? Oh, no, not yet. An officer has to... I'm going to be promoted soon. You know, even with my eyes closed, I can tell what you do for a job. Because of the smell of kerosene. Oh. Quite a scent, isn't it? My wife doesn't like it very much. She says it lingers. I don't mind. I think of it as a perfume. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read, and we will determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, and I am joined by my co-host, who is the Clarice to my Montag. <laughs> Stella. Thank you. I'm glad that I'm the sort of catalyst for him to really start considering things. But also <laughs> I'm concerned because I think she, her fate is... Yeah, unfortunately, I, I yeah. hate to say that, but, but it, it, I think the personality suits you. <laughs> I hate, fine with me. Yeah, I mean, her questions and everything, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, before we begin, I do have to um, give a quick... Apology to the listeners in that I have a cold, or I'm getting over a cold. I had a cold about a week before recording this, so I'm a little, little stuffed up and a little sniffly. But I hopefully I come out clear. I'm, my voice is nasal to begin with, so it's probably not much of a difference. But we are doing Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, um, a seminal work of uh, dystopian sci-fi, and I'll get into the context of the book and the real life history and the, and everything uh, behind it in a moment but what we always do with this is we talk about what our history with the book is so Stella um, what is your history with Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> yeah I it's kind of a weird little history which is funny because this was one of the books on the 10th grade curriculum when I went to high school mm -hmm. however it was only for one of the 10th grade honors class. And the other 10th grade honors class read something else. And I was 
trying to like remember because I thought, is that really what happened? And I texted my best friend and said, were you in 10th grade honors? And she said, yes. And didn't you read Fahrenheit 451? Whereas we read, so she read Fahrenheit 451. I did not. And I read, our class read, um, what's it with the boys? Uh, Lord of the, the flies. flies. Okay. So it's kind of weird that really that would weird. happen. We were kind of discussing, like, why on earth um, would he have done that? I guess it was his first year, so it was either an experiment or because we were not we were not the poorest of the three schools in the in the county. We were the second of the three uh-huh. uh, poor wise. Uh, so maybe there was like a classroom copy issue, and maybe he only had so much, so half of it. So, anyways, that's that. Uh-huh. I, I just think that's really weird. But it was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list, so I read this. It was probably one of the, maybe in the first year or first two years when I started doing the reading list. Mm. And then, so it's been enough of a space that I could enjoy it this time. And uh, it's funny because I was recently watching an anime called Library War. I think it's not Library Wars, but it's only 13 episodes. And it's actually about censorship. And this, the government is like censoring, but you have this, um, this military force on the side of libraries that protects things and, and everything. And they actually mention at one point, they said there was a book at one point that talked about burning other books. And I was like, Oh my gosh, they're mentioning, you know, Fahrenheit 451 and how apropos. So yeah, so that's my history. So this is the second time that I've read it, though I've been aware of it for a while. Yeah. Um, this is also on my, uh, the list that, when we first started this podcast, you, know, you had the Rory Gilmore reading list, and I had mm-hmm. the long list of books from off the top of my head that I could remember that I read in uh, junior high and high school. That I was like, I, and the project was, I'm going to reread all of them. And we're still, I'm still working my way through this. So this comes from that list. I also was assigned it in 10th grade. Um, I was assigned Lord of the Flies in high school. I think I read that in 11th. Uh, so I, I first read this in 10th grade in Mrs. Tabor's class and um, then uh, reread it again about five or six years ago because for about three or four years in a row until I left my previous school, I taught this as part of the 10th grade curriculum. So I'm very familiar with the book. So, And I have a copy in front of me of what was the 60th anniversary edition that was published in... Um, 2013 so it has a uh, it has an intro by mine has an intro by Neil Gaiman and then it has a bunch of ancillary materials doing a little bit of the history of the book as well as um, reviews that were published and essays that were published about Fahrenheit 451 um, which I had never read until just reading for our episode because I had seen this edition it was the one we had in the school where I was teaching it I always just kind of read the just the main text. Um, I read the introduction. The Neil Gaiman introduction is really good. Uh, the, some of the ancillary materials. It's interesting, but it's kind of like DVD extras, where some of the stuff's really interesting, and some of it's like, I see why it's there, but I don't really really care. So, let's get into the book. Let's get into who Ray Bradbury was, and uh, what Fahrenheit 451 is, and how it came about. So, Ray Bradbury is our author. 
probably one of the most well-known names in American science fiction in the 20th century. He was born in 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois, and he wrote more than three dozen books throughout his career, including Fahrenheit 451, as well as The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man, Dandelion Wine, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. He also wrote hundreds of short stories, including The Velt, which is a story that I've taught and really enjoyed, uh, The Pedestrian, There Will Come Soft Rains, and All Summer in a Day. He wrote for the theater, cinema, and television, including the screenplay for John Huston's film version of Moby Dick, starring Gregory Peck, and the Emmy award-winning teleplay The Halloween Tree. He was the recipient of the 2000 National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, the 2000 Pulitzer Prize Special Citation for and numerous other honors, including a Prometheus Award for Fahrenheit, the National Medal of Arts, a World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement, and three rather interesting honors. First, there is a crater on the moon named Dandelion Crater, after his novel Dandelion Wine, which he was named after. Uh, that was named by the crew of Apollo 15. There is a Ray Bradbury Park in Waukegan, Illinois, and the place where the Mars Curiositor, Curiosity rover landed in 2012 was named Bradbury Landing. Ray Bradbury passed away in 2012 at the age of 91 after a lengthy illness, and his personal library was willed to the Waukegan Public Library, where he had many of his formative reading experiences. Now, our book, Fahrenheit 451, is named after the temperature at which book paper burns, which is something Bradbury claims he found out by calling up a local firehouse and asking. <laughs> Literally, that's what it was. Uh, there have been, there was a story from Slate magazine that I used to use with when I taught this in 10th grade called, Does Paper Really Burn at 451 Degrees Fahrenheit? And it was, of course, depends on the paper, depends on the situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the veracity of that claim is, uh, you know, in dispute, I guess, but even so, the title is the title. The book was first published in 1953. Its genesis comes from a few short story and short story ideas, most notably The Pedestrian. Uh, this involves the police stopping and harassing a random pedestrian one night because that person happens to be out for a night walk, something nobody does in that society because everybody sits at home and watches television. He also wrote a story about, uh, had a story called Bright Phoenix that he then expanded into a novella called The Fireman, which his mm. publisher then said would work better as a whole novel. So he expanded that novella to the complete novel that you and I read for this show. And the cool part of this story is that Bradbury wrote this book on a typewriter in the basement of the UCLA library, and he had to rent the typewriter at 10 cents an hour. Oh so my. You picture this guy typing as fast as he could, pumping quarters into a rentable typewriter, like you're playing a video. That sounds game expensive. Yeah. He reported Back then, yeah, yeah. He reportedly finished um the novella The Fireman in nine days, and when they told him, Hey, expand this to make it a full length novel, he went back to the UCLA library and took another nine days to add to the story to create the finished Fahrenheit four fifty one. The book, which is a dystopian novel centering around censorship, and we'll get to the plot in a little bit, actually has a peculiar history of censorship itself. According to the book that I've used a few times in this podcast already, 100 Banned Books, 
The publisher expurgated several portions of the book and published a special edition with more than 75 passages modified to eliminate words such as hell, damn, and abortion, as well as some other content. Nobody really complained about it because few people noticed it or were aware of it, including Bradbury. Both versions of the book continued to be published with the complete uncensored one called the, quote, adult version until 1979. So that's 24 years after publication. That's when Bradbury was finally alerted to the censorship. I think a friend alerted him or a student or a teacher or somebody alerted it to him to him Mm -hmm. to it and he demanded that the publisher fix it and they did now one of the results of this by the way is that the incident set in motion the creation of the american library association's young adult division of their intellectual freedom committee they looked into expurgation by school book clubs such as scholastics and found that all of them did cut and censor books to some extent they began to urge teachers to speak out about this and demand that an expurgated book be clearly identified on the copyright page as, quote, an edited school book edition. Uh, There have been actual challenges to the book beyond that uh, in the way we expect challenges to go. In 1992, students at Venado Middle School or Venado Middle School in Irvine, California, were issued copies of the novel with numerous words blacked out. School officials had ordered teachers to use black markers to censor what they felt were obscene words, such as hell and damn. (laughs) Before giving it's like them... extra meta almost. They're like doing this thing uh-huh. that's... Oh, man. The irony is delicious. Yeah. Before giving them to the students, parents complained about this action and the newspapers ran story about the irony of censoring an anti-censorship novel. The school then announced they would not use those copies. In 2006, the parents of a 10th grade high school student in Montgomery County, Texas, demanded the book be banned from their daughter's English class reading list. Their daughter was assigned the book during banned books week, but stopped Mm -hmm. reading several pages in in due to the offensive language and description of burning of the burning of the Bible. Again, the irony, it's like it's not promoting the burning of the Bible. It's part of the discussion. Utopian. Anyway, in addition, the parents protested the violence portrayal of Christians and depictions of firemen in the novel. <laughs> and very quickly, I do want to note that there are a few adaptations. It was adapted into a film by famed uh, New Wave French director Francois Truffaut. It's one of it's Truffaut's only American film and one of his, I think, his only or a few films in color. Montag is played by Oscar Werner, and both Clarice and Mildred are played by Julie Christie. It was um, the plot has changed quite a bit. It's actually not a very good movie. Um, It was adapted into a stage play in the late 70s by Bradbury himself. This play also diverges from the source material. Most importantly, it makes Clarice older, because in the movie, in the book, she's uh, 17 years old, this character. In Mm. the movie, they make her like a, a older like an adult a 20 something elementary school teacher and julie christie at the time this is the 1960s this is right around the time she did dr shivago so she's like starlet you know ingenue like you know very just one of the more beautiful actresses in hollywood sort of um level of 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 uh, hollywood sex symbol so uh, and they and both of those versions have her survive and meet up with Montag at the end of the movie. It was also adapted into HBO into a miniseries starring uh, Michael B. Jordan with as Montag in 2018. Yep. I did not see that, so I can't comment as to whether or not it was good. I heard mixed reviews. 
the BBC did a radio dramatization in 1982, and there was a graphic novel adaptation done by Tim Hamilton in 2009. I have read that because there was a copy at my old high school, and I used to, there were a couple of copies, and I used to give them to some of the students I knew who struggled with either English or struggled with reading, and uh, it really worked well. It was a really well done book. Uh, as far as a graphic novel adaptation, and apparently it was authorized by Bradbury to do. Because so, sometimes you see graphic novel adaptations of uh, famous works of literature, like Shakespeare or whatever, and they're all right, but they could be better. This this was pretty quality. So, our story has three parts, and I will give the title to each part before I give the synopsis of that part. Part one of... Fahrenheit 451 is called The Hearth and the Salamander. Fahrenheit 451 takes place in the future, and our protagonist is Guy Montag, a fireman. But Montag does not have the same job that we expect from a fireman in our present-day world, because instead of putting out fires, he starts them. Specifically, he is in charge of burning books, which are considered contraband in this society. However, he is ultimately unhappy something he comes to realize when he is walking home from work one night and he meets a neighbor, a 17-year-old girl named Clarice McClellan, who is free-spirited and curious and refers to herself as 17 and crazy, to the point where she has earned the label antisocial at school. She engages him in conversations that nobody else seems to ever bother to have with him. The last question she asks him before he heads in for the night is, Are you happy? And that lingers with him as he gets home to see his wife, Mildred, who is a direct contrast to Clarice. Mildred spends her time in the television parlor, and this is a television room comprised of screens that take up entire walls. And uh, their house, they have three. So she stands in a room where three of the entire wall is a huge television screen. And she wants a fourth, but... She even says, like, you know, I want a fourth. He's like, you know, we're, we're, we haven't even paid off the third. You know, they can't afford it. Yeah. She's obsessed with uh, what she refers to as the family. Uh, this is an interactive television program that seems to be kind of like a soap opera. But, you know, at one point they talks about how, like, she has a role and she has lines and they'll say something and that's her cue and she talks to it. So it's kind of kind of like that. So when she's not watching television, she's got seashell radio, a seashell radio. It's a small little radio you put in your ear, and she's listening constantly to the constant noise coming from the seashell. So the night our novel begins, Montag comes home to find Mildred unconscious and near death with an empty bottle of sleeping pills on the floor next to her. He calls 911, and they send technicians to pump her stomach and cleanse her bloodstream. The next morning, Mildred wakes up in a great mood and incredibly hungry with no memory of her overdose the night before. Montag then goes to work where we meet two of the novel's main antagonists. The first is a mechanical hound. This thing is designed to sniff out and capture fugitives. It can be programmed to the DNA or scent of a particular person, and upon capturing it, it will stab it with procaine. This is a sedative that can be as lethal as the programmer of the dog wants it to be. The other antagonist is his boss, Captain Beatty. Beatty is an incredibly intelligent man who seems to know a lot about what is in the books they are burning, as well as the machinations of the society and its laws. He is shrewd and manipulative, especially of people like Montag, who are pretty naive. The fire department gets a call to the house of a woman who lives in an old house 
that is full of contraband books, like they are spilling out of everywhere. Mm-hmm. They go about their usual business, which means that they tear down the walls they so they can they kind of ventilate the house so that they can the fire will burn easily. They knock books off the shelves. They douse everything in kerosene. The one thing that's really different, like most calls, is that um, when most calls happen, the police have already taken away the homeowner. So they're usually, the firemen are usually alone to do their job. But here... The homeowner is there. The woman has refused to leave her house, and she says she will not. They will have to burn her with the books. And she means it because as they are pleading with her to come along into custody, she pulls out an unlit match. All the firemen back away from the house and watch her as she lights the match and burns herself up with the books. This disturbs Montag to the point where he gets sick. More importantly, he also gets sick from the guilt of having swiped a book from the woman's house and hidden it under his coat. As he lays in bed, he notes to Mildred that Clarice hasn't been around lately and that her family seems to have disappeared. Mildred, in her own ADHD way of telling us things, says that Clarice is dead. She's been hit by a car. While Montag is homesick, Beatty comes over and proceeds to lecture him on why books are banned. Essentially, and I'm breaking it down as simply as I can, a number of decades prior, more and more works of literature were being censored because of the way they offended various groups of people. And as society's attention spans got shorter, they began to be the books began to be watered down to accommodate that. In time, the government stepped in and banned them outright. And while this was going on, technology was advancing to the point where houses were being fireproofed against accidental fires, and the purpose of the firemen evolved from what we know them as to their current occupations in this society. The populace either didn't notice or didn't care, and since the government had control over the flow of information, they simply adjusted history to make people think that books were always illegal and firemen had always burned them. Beatty leaves, but not before hinting to Montag that he knows that Montag stole a book from the old woman's house. After Beatty leaves, Montag is sure that he hears the mechanical hound sniffing around his door, and after he's sure the hound has left, he shows Mildred not just the book that he stole, but a secret stash of books he's been hiding in his house's ventilation shafts. Part 2 is called The Sieve and the Sand. Montag wants Mildred to read with him, but she's scared and disgusted by what she sees and she'll have nothing of it. He decides then to look up a man named Faber. Faber is an old English professor that Montag met once in a park. And after calling Faber, he goes to see him. While riding the train on the way to Faber's, Montag carries a Bible with him and he tries to read out in the open, but he can't understand what he is reading, partly because his head is filled with the advertisements blaring throughout the train, especially one for a, for a toothpaste called Denim's Dentifrice. <laughs> Montag meets Faber, shows him the book, and Faber lectures him in a way that is counter to what Beatty had been telling him the previous night. Faber says that books are important to a free society, as is the right way to digest information. In short, he says society needs three things. Quality information, the time to process that information, and the ability and right to act on what you learn from the first two. Faber then agrees to help Montag and gives him a special version of a seashell radio. This is a two-way radio that Faber will use to listen in on his conversations and talk to Montag. Montag goes home to Mildred and her friends watching the parlor walls and talking about the family. He turns it off and then proceeds to read a portion of Dover Beach, a poem by Matthew Arnold, and he berates her friends for being ignorant. They get mad at him and one of them even 
cries after hearing the poem, although Mrs. Phelps, this is her name, has no idea why she's crying. They all leave, and Mildred locks herself in the bedroom. Montag hides some of his books in the backyard bushes so that Mildred can't get to them. Then he heads into work, turning in the Bible so Beatty can think the whole affair was a mistake and that Montag is a good, obedient fireman. They then get a call for a fire, and when they arrive at the house, they see that it's Montag's. Part three, our final part of the novel, is called Burning Bright. The police take Mildred, who is crying about losing her parlor walls, and Beatty gives Montag the flamethrower that they use and tells him to destroy the house. He also notices that Montag is hearing a voice and deduces that he has a two-ray radio, and he tells Montag that they'll catch that particular person sooner or later. Montag burns the house and gets a particular glee out of destroying the parlor and the family. Beatty then says he's under arrest, but instead of going quietly, Montag turns the flamethrower on Beatty, and he kills him. They release the hound! which ma- <laughs> Release the hounds! Yeah. They release the hound, which manages to stab Montag's leg with the procaine needle at least once before Montag is able to turn the flamethrower on it and destroy it. Montag takes off running, and he's in a lot of pain because, or he's... It, his leg's completely asleep, and if you've ever tried to run on a leg that's completely asleep... Pins really and needles! Help. Yeah. So he takes off running, he gets some of the books out of his backyard, the one that he could retrieve, and he heads to another fireman's house where he plants a couple of books there. He then heads to Favors, risking crossing the highway where he's almost run over by a car full of nutjob teenagers, and when he arrives at Favors, they disguise him by ridding him of those clothes, giving him some of Favors' old clothes and dousing him in whiskey, also that the search party and any other mechanical hound they have can't find him by scent. Favors says that he will get on the next bus to St. Louis and visit an old printer friend of his who can help them start some sort of rebellion through books. Montag then heads to the river, jumps in, floats down, and once he reaches shore, comes upon an old set of railroad tracks that he follows until he finds a camp full of old men. They are old professors who were all forced out of their jobs and are now nomads. They roam the countryside and they declare themselves the protectors of old books. They have memorized passages and entire books for the sake of preservation. They watch the police chase down and kill Montag on a small portable television they have, now, this is a fabricated capture and kill because the police need an ending to their story. They don't want mm. the public to know that they lost their prey, so they need to look good. Montag decides to join this group. As they pack up camp and prepare to move on, we hear that war has been declared. And I should have noted, I really haven't in the summary yet, there's a whole subtext of a coming nuclear war that pops up throughout the novel. Planes are flying overhead, something on the news or whatever. It's in the background the whole time, and at the very end of the book, bombers make their run at the city and nuke the city. Uh, They watch it happen, and when everything is settled, they head toward the city to see if there are survivors. So that's Fahrenheit 451. Um, We ask a first question every time we do this, and that is, did you like it? I did! I feel bad because, uh, to peel back the curtain, as you sometimes say on your (laughs) in-country podcast, you actually just said it on an episode I listened to today when I was running, I have been reading a lot, but this was like last minute for me, unfortunately, and so I was speed reading it so i finished it in three days i actually finished it seven minutes before we were scheduled to start recording 
So I, I really liked it, but I feel like I didn't pay it its due that it actually deserves. But, um, I mean, if I liked it and, and I was like speed reading, I think I would really enjoy it if I was, you know, if I slowed down. So there you go. It does read quick, though. It does, I mean, yeah. It, it, you could, and rereading it, what's, what I like about rereading it is that, um, you, it is layered. So you do find, sometimes you find things that you didn't see there, or you notice one thing more than another on a reread. Um, so, uh, I picked this book, obviously. Uh, and, and it's, it's in my top five. Like, it's, it's one, it's really like in my top two. It is one of my favorite books of all time. And the more I read it, the more I just absolutely love this novel. More than like 1984. Um, in 1984, it's kind of you know the, the, one of the standards of dystopian. Right. I I like that Bradbury does what Orwell does more succinctly because this is about half the length of 1984. Um, and and if if Beatty's speech, we can get into this later. If Beatty's speech is the Goldstein's book portion of Fahrenheit 451, it's a hell of a lot shorter. Oh yeah, um, and, and and more palatable. And more palatable. Um, I think it has a more like as 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 much as 1984 can be applied to our modern day society. I think this is more relevant. Um, I loved this when I was in tenth grade. I came back to it rereading it. I just it I just absolutely love it and I do love rereading it um because there's so much and I really like Bradbury's prose. Uh I just think there's a he he elevates his language and yet does not like what's the phrase gild the lily? I mean he just doesn't mm. overdo it even though he he definitely has a elevated style and elevated vocabulary but he he almost follows the 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 shrunk and white rule of you know word economy really really well because because I, I really like you know it's vivid and yet it's not overly ornate or anything like that mm -hmm. so that's that's what I like so to get into our questions our book opens with an epigraph that's from Juan Ramon Jimenez and it says if they give you ruled paper write the other way um, this is something that I would every time I taught this, I would bring up this quote and we would look at it. And I'm asking that question: What is the meaning of this, and why start the book with this epigraph? <laughs> yeah, I didn't pay too much attention to it. I think I read it and I looked at that name and I thought, "This guy sounds familiar. Who is it?" <laughs> I had to look uh, it up. I didn't. Like, yeah, I but then name. I never. I didn't. I didn't get past it because I'm like, I can't tarry <laughs> on this sort of detail. I need to read this book. But for me, my, and you know, I, I'm going to count on your expertise throughout all these questions. But for me, it sounds like, you know, there's this element of control with the, the ruled lines. And it's about breaking that control or going your own way or, um, sort of fighting against the system, which in a sense is certainly what Guy begins to do. And I guess really you find out he's been doing a little bit all along, mm. though he almost makes it sound as if, as if he has been doing it without really ever knowing it, like his hand is doing stuff that the rest of him doesn't know. So it just seems like it, it's fighting back against the system. If you're told to do something in a very rigid way, then fight that and and um, and then do something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just, I did a quick Google. Juan Ramon Jimenez was a Spanish poet. Who, oh, okay. Um, so, uh, who's credited with that quote? Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. And, and, and a lot of the questions I have uh, that I 
that I pulled, um, admittedly, because I've taught this before, I've pulled from stuff that I've used, you know, essential questions from lessons and things like that. So some of my sophomores have had these questions before, back when I was teaching sophomores. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there, there's a, it's, it's actually, what I like about that quote is that it's a good way to introduce the idea of a symbolism metaphor, like, you know, the way of thinking about something figuratively, you know, and how mm-hmm. that idea of how that idea of, you know, ruled paper um and i'm a college ruled guy not a wide ruled guy um <laughs> they give you rule paper right the other way the, you know that idea of non-conformity of breaking against the rules of you know and and how that rep and how that simple act can represent so much more and uh it's something that and i think it's it's a it's an easy accessible uh it's an easy accessible one too so so this book has one of my all-time favorite first sentences by the way so the most famous first sentence of a book or one of them i would say you've got uh it was the best of times it was the worst of times (laughs) etc right from from two cities probably is probably one of the most recognizable first lines in literature the second to that, or maybe right up there, was probably Call Me Ishmael mm. from Moby Dick. This is not as recognizable, but oh my god, it was a pleasure to burn. It's the first paragraph, it's the first sentence, the one sentence, it's a pleasure to burn. And then and then he gets, it was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. And it's he describes in Bradbury for the first, like, page and a half until you know Montag gets home and then we see him go to the suburbs to see um, Clarice for the first time he describes in vivid detail what it's like to be Montag setting these books on fire and it's this violent image and it's it's beautiful in its violence in a way it's it's like just this vivid description and you get this sort of like weird passion that comes from what they have that there's the the relationship between them and i just wanted to point that out but he gets home and he runs into this girl that he's never seen this new neighbor and she introduces him and she says are you happy and he's like yeah of course and then was like well no so why does this society seem so unhappy (laughs) i don't think even they know i think it's the absence of something that they never had and and perhaps that they're searching for something that they're never going to get not having books not having memories almost of the past and everything i think it's just like almost looking for something that's not there and feeling this emptiness and just like being done with it. But it's so weird because they don't even realize that they're unhappy, which is like, and they're just committing suicide and, and people are like, you know, that that's just what happened. And the woman, you know, Mildred, Yeah. <laughs> I should, you know, Mildred taking the, the pills and saying, Oh, I just forgot how many I had taken. So like, it's almost like out of body experiences, like them doing this without them even knowing it. But I think it's honestly this void that they feel like there should be something there, but it's not. And so um, the seeking that, that they're never going to find knowing that there's this emptiness, but can't really put 
a finger on what it is and, and trying to fill it with other things like Mildred. I think she tries to fill it with the family and I don't know what other people do. I think for the most part, it probably is those screens as, as much as they can do. But yeah, that's, that's how I perceive it. Yeah. And, um, the, the, the whole thing with Mildred overdosing and, and it is a, it's a su it's a suicide attempt. That's you're right. She doesn't even realize she's trying to kill herself. Mm -hmm. Um, Montag is somebody who, comes to realize something is wrong but he's not sure mm. whereas Mildred never does and yeah you're right they, they they don't know why they're happy and she you know and and he how they send these technicians and even they say he's like why didn't they send a doctor they're like you know do you know how how many people how many times we get this call per night and they they hook her up to this machine that essentially pumps her stomach and it kind of cleans out her blood it's like they change her oil. Mm. It, it's like an oil change. And it's so, like, cold and routine. And they talk, and, and it's these subtle hints of, you know, the, the Bradbury never has the narration of everybody in society was unhappy. And he, he never goes into the explanation of, of like, you know, this is all the things it's like, you know, this is here and, and you are, it's left to you to jump to this conclusion of like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people in this book. There's a lot of people in the society who are unhappy and they might not even realize it. The fact that she remembers nothing the next morning, except that she's really hungry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that he's like, you know, you don't remember, like, you know, and, and she's, she's hiding something. Uh, that she doesn't even realize you're there. You're right. And their attention spans are like crazy, crazy, like nothing mm -hmm. with the screens and things. And the idea that, because you and I spend our time in front of screens. Yeah. And even I notice that there's a certain level of engagement with a screen, depending on what I'm doing. And there's a certain level of, you know, certain pieces of entertainment, I think, are fulfilling. You know? Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff you turn on, then there's stuff you put on for noise. And the idea that it's just stuff flashing at you and stuff flashing at you and stuff, you know, it's it's at, you know, even commercials themselves, like, you know, stuff like that. And, and you're bombarded with images and things like that. And, and, and you especially with a phone or something there are, there are times where you, you can even feel in your body the way this thing is affecting you and you're like I need to get away from it because you have that switch in your head that says okay this is just this is creating a response in you that's like no I need to go do something else whereas Mildred doesn't have that she's a zombie you know she's she's a slave to the thing um what did you think of her? <laughs> Gosh. Because she's one of my favorite characters in this whole book. Is she really? Yes. Mild? Wow, because you're going to have to explain a, that. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of her? For sure. I just found her... I don't know if annoying is the right word. Like, I almost wonder what it would have been like to have Montag without anyone. And I was thinking, because I did like the HBO adaptation, but I mm. feel like there wasn't a Mildred in there. I'm going to have to rethink about this, but I just remember Michael B. Jordan. I don't remember a Mildred. But 
Yeah, it's, they, they, well, I guess it sums up everything, right? Their relationship, can't even remember until the bitter end how they met, which yeah. was insane to think about. And not interacting at all with each other. Like, he is trying to, but she does not give him anything all about her family. And I guess she's an actress. That's as much as I could work out because yeah. she, she's given lines and things to read through. And she's the one who turns them in as well. And so it's, it's almost like living, you know, I think there's a, there's a, one of my favorite lines actually in the Tennessee Williams play by, uh, it was by Tennessee Williams. Um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is, gosh, if I can remember it now, is that we're not married, we're just living in the same cage. Mm. And that's absolutely what this situation is because they're just like two separate people that, are inhabiting the same space, but that is it. So I think through her, I didn't care for her, so I'm interested to hear what you say. I think through her, you get to really see, I think, where humanity is. Like, you get to see this unha- this dullness almost and uh, suicide and everything. With, God, with Montag, you get to see someone almost exploring a little bit more and what's what society was a little bit or you know trying to get Mm -hmm. back to that so you just have two sides of the situation that's at hand and in the city right now i love this character because the way (laughs) i read this character is that she is a brilliant satire of Mm. the trope of what is what at that time was becoming the 1950s this was written in 50s published in 53 this was becoming the the eisenhower era suburban housewife and the idea that that woman's role was to stay in the home and the home was an extension of her like they they were you know i mean if you look at ads from the 50s and i used to we used to have a we used to buy a calendar every couple of years called fabulous 50s advertising that was just these totally like classic housewife you know ads and things like that and they're totally sexist and everything but it's this idea that like you know she is so she is so supposed to be part of the home and um and ultimately is unfulfilled because all she is 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 you know is this this housewife who sits down home and does tv all day and and i see this now maybe i'm misreading it maybe you know but but i see this as him calling out the inherent sexism in society of expecting women to do nothing but sit at home and watch tv and and be in the house all day and if you amplify it you know, because it's one thing to be like, okay, you're going to do housework all day or take care of the kids, but it's just, you amplify it where she doesn't have to do everything. You notice that a lot of the house is automated. Mm, yep. And which is a which is a trope in a lot of Bradbury's science fiction. He he uses the whole idea of an automated house a few times. One of his short stories, "There Will Come Soft Rains," is there's no human in it. It's a post-apocalyptic story, and the only voice is the automatic is all the things going off in the automated house and it's incredibly sad it's it's such a great story i recommend it and there's a the velt is about this parents like letting basically letting this um virtual reality nursery raise their kids and it ends horribly so he he's gone to this whole idea of of technology in in the house becoming this thing and and it kind of controls mildred and um and and 
I think it's there's a lot of this book that is a warning, and part of it is I think maybe I'm wrong about what Ray Bradbury is saying here is I think it's like you cannot let this do this to this to a family or to a unit or to a marriage or to a relationship. You know, a, a woman is not somebody who is supposed to just sit around on TV, be on TV all the time, be in front of the TV all the time, and 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 do it. You know, this is what it's going to do to them. You know, let then they'll be unfulfilled and they'll try to kill themselves. So I think Mildred is a brilliant send up of that type of person, or what we've done to that type of person. Um, and I absolutely love the that image at the end. This is all the way down to question P on our list. When the war comes, because remember the, the early 50s, you know, it's the Cold War, so it's this heightened threat of nuclear war. And the war comes, and Montag perceives the dropping of the bomb as like it getting closer and closer to the city and closer and closer to like Rin. It's like right in front of Mildred's face, and he pictures her at yeah. like the last second realizing like she finally realizes everything and it then but it's too late and it's just um it's a very sad moment mm -hmm. and it, it's a very sad moment for him but i think it's a great way to end her story or end her sorry um because i don't think she's a villain in any way i think she's a victim so i think that she's a victim and i think she's a great satirical character so that's why i love this character mm. But, but there wasn't a question, was oh, there? No, no, I was okay. waiting to see if you had anything else to say. No, I mean, I, no, I, I get it in that perspective, but otherwise I just think that, oh, Mildred. What do you think about Clarice? And talk about the other woman in the story, and then we'll get to Montag and then some of the other men and some of the men. <laughs> I, I like Clarice. I'm sad that she, and I'm pretty sure she was played by, um, what's her name, something... Uh, Sedu, Ledu, that was in the most recent Bond. Oh, yes. I think in in that. Anyways, I shouldn't keep referencing that, but I'm pretty that's okay. sure that's Lewis. I like her. I like her, and I like how they started off right with her. I mean, she's right there at this fire station and just peppers him with these questions and she's so she's inquisitive, but she also has these experiences that Montag hasn't had. But she's almost like at the very end, the man, I can't remember his name now, was talking about his grandfather and all these things that his grandfather did with him. And he mourned his grandfather because he thought, you know, he did all this stuff. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah, it's very similar to that because this this girl had this experience, you know, had all this knowledge because of her uncle. And so she was very much a different type of person, I think, than montag certainly had any experience with and it seems like society would allow because i remember when the police ended up well police i guess ended up killing that guy that was walking on the street there's some quote of like they know when there are queer ducks about so like they had uh -huh. already been watching him so it seems like if you are not of the status quo or quote unquote normal, like you're already on a watch list, even if books have nothing to do with it. So just the fact that she is a bit of an odd duck, but mm -hmm. it's so interesting how like that'd be completely normal in our society and really endearing of these questions and everything. But it's so strange to him and everything. And that yeah. he, 
she makes an impact on him right away and she's not there that much she's at the very beginning and um i guess she pops up maybe once or twice more and then she's dead but her impact carries on throughout the entire novel and i think that's that's really speaks to her character how enduring it is and and just the impact she had on montag yeah it bothers me that she had to die though yeah because i i'm sure that and, and, and actually like i said when he wrote this as a play he had her meet up with him at the end like that i guess they were i've never seen the play i guess they ran or something and she so she lives in the play because i think okay. maybe even he thought yeah maybe it was a better idea to have her live i understand having her disappear for a certain amount of time in the novel so that he can act on what he's been like he can act on his own Right, but I I didn't like the fact that yeah her death was the cat one of the catalysts for him to finally like mm-hmm. you know do it um, especially since the same night that that he finds out she dies he watched that old woman burn herself mm-hmm. so if you're gonna have a character's death have an impact on Montag that old woman's is perfect because that old woman's entire reason for existing is to go down is to commit suicide by cop to go down mm-hmm. with her books as an act of rebellion and protest, like self-immolation, right? Yep. Clarice, I'm going to I'm gonna throw two modern pop culture terms at everybody. Clarice kind of starts off as a manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> and then she becomes, thank you, Gail Simone, a woman in a refrigerator. Oh. Isn't she fridged halfway through the novel, basically? I guess technically, yeah. yeah. To... And it, it, that's what bugged me about it. Although I love the character. I, I thought that I, I'm with you. I'm like, you know, here's this free spirit. And here's another. She's not a satire, but she's a statement against the kind of encroaching sameness of suburban culture and conformity of suburban culture that was encroaching throughout the fifties. The idea of you're right of, of everybody kind of conforming to a certain standard and that standard being set and the queerness or weirdness and queerness being in terms of weird, not, um, Correct. although, although yeah. queerness in itself would have been seen as oh, the yeah. same way Clarice was, you know, um, yeah. but that, that weirdness, uh, being something that was seen as a threat to society would, I mean, cause, and she talks about how like the, the kids, like they act out and this is another thing, like they're, everybody's either suicidal or they're like cr- incredibly violent with their cars. You ever know, did you notice that in the book? Yeah. I mean, you almost got ran over by those kids. Yeah. And, and they all want to go like over 90 miles per hour. Yeah. But it, it, at one point, like even Mildred, like, says you know what what clears my head is driving and if i hit like a squirrel it's no big deal it's kind of like fun it's like but i also wonder if that's another suicide thing like if i'm gonna die i'm gonna die yeah so i'm just gonna speed and whatever happens happens yeah no that's a really good point i didn't think of that so montag's our main character and, and i know i haven't asked you like what you think of him I did want to ask you what you thought of Montag because, you know, he's in the same vein as a Winston from 84 because Winston mm-hmm. was a member of the, he wor- you know, he worked for the government, you know, yep. Montag works for the government. Um, what, what do you think of this guy? Yeah. I will say before I answer this question that Sophia Butella actually, so uh, it's way off, was, was Clarice. What do I think of this guy? It's a good question. 
You know, at the beginning, right off the bat, page one, I forgot that he was our hero. And I thought, this. I think this is the captain. Because, of course, you started off with the line of... It was a pleasure to burn. Yeah, it was a pleasure to burn. And I thought about when you're saying opening lines, I also think about um, Lolita, Fire of My Loins. Oh, okay. But you did not mention that one. <laughs> I've never read that's Lolita, okay. so that's... Yeah. yeah, so page one... I was thinking like, oh, this, this must be the captain, and it's not. But wait, you know, Montag, isn't that? So already you're like, oh, my gosh. How can I be behind a main character, a lead, a hero, potentially, who's burning books? But then you start to see this question and curiosity and starting to a little bit fight the system, whether it's intentional or not, and kind of doing some dumb things along the way, making mistakes and things like that. But also, I think he shows compassion and he cares, I think, especially with the Fagin, that character. I think mm. his name was Fagin. Faber? Faber, yeah. The professor, Fagin right? is, yeah. yeah, Faber, and the fact that he wants to protect him and tells him all these things so he can get his scent out of it so, you know, the hound can't get to him. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure if he was ever a selfish character, but I think he was very much almost, he was a member of the mindless masses, doing what he was told and finding enjoyment, at least because he was told that it was an enjoyable thing, and then starting to question it. And I, I think he's a great character, I think especially with now. Like, we're choosing very topical books right now. Yes. For, and I think we're unintentionally doing it. We just want to talk about good literature. Mm-hmm. But with good literature, I think it's so timeless, and, and a lot of the themes keep popping up. And so I think now we're in this almost mindless mass era. And to have someone pop out of that and say, whoa, something's not right, and to start to question that – absolutely make mistakes but find people along the way and and find a purpose to a certain extent which his purpose you know is having ecclesiastes in his mind which i thought was interesting because that's of course um from solomon and him being such a wise king i really liked him and it's funny because it starts off with that you know it's a pleasure to burn it's so like icky and it makes you feel uncomfortable but to see him struggle and he's certainly not a perfect guy and I I thought, oh man, why would you put that book under your pillow? And like that was a really intense scene, and and the wife and everything, and yeah, yeah, I, he's just he's really three dimensional, and I yeah, I don't dynamic, I guess to a certain extent. I mean, he's certainly not a static character, but I feel like there's got to be a more powerful word for him. I, I think he's just a really interesting character. I think he has more flavor, if I can use that term, than the main character does in 1984. I just feel like Montag has a little bit more personality, in my opinion. But yeah, yeah I, I like him as a character. I think the other thing is that, granted, Winston has stopped before he'd really do anything damaging. Montag actually does take some serious action, and then, um, I granted, uh, Bradbury's a little on the nose with the fact that toward the end of the book, he brings up the myth of the phoenix. Yeah. And he kind of applies it to Montag, and it, right. so it's not subtle. But I think that's an earned lack of subtlety, and I, I agree with you, because he really is like reborn 
and what I, why I laughed earlier when I was going through the history of the book and how the one parent had objected to the book because of the way it treats Christians and the Bible. And there's a whole like baptism and rebirth image at the end of the book and and the fact that and we'll get to the end of the book in a little while and you're right the fact that the one piece of literature that he holds on to is ecclesiastes so I'm, I'm reading this this parents complaint i'm like you never read the book you never read the book past the first thing you didn't like and it's like no this is it's it's not a religious book but it's not an anti-religion book it's just it's it's um so, but it calls upon the more good, the goodness of certain images in, in our, you know, in our culture. And I like the fact that this is something that, that, um, that I don't know if I picked up on it the first time I read it when I was 15, but when I read it again to start teaching it of how Bradbury foreshadows the, the end of the first part with him revealing all the books to Mildred because he, he's always looking at the vent. Yeah. It, it, he stops and looks at it. He stops and looks at it. And like, if you pick up on it, you're like, there's something back there or there's something about it. there's something. And, and he, he's in the way that she's unconscious or subconsciously killing her, trying to kill herself. He's subconsciously trying to rebel. Like, you know, he's been, it, it implies that he's been stealing books for a while now. Yeah. But, but the idea that he is conscious of it only seems to happen now with catalysts like Clarice and this woman who burns herself. And there are things you could possibly do un completely unconsciously, not unconscious in terms of sleep, unconscious and you do it without realizing you actually do it. There are things that a lot of people could do, and that sort of thing is, is one of them. And uh, it's it's a really brilliant way to have establish his character and, and have these threads. Yeah, I'm with you. It's there's a real fully realized character here, and then we get to Beatty. So that that scene at home because Beatty just sits there mm -hmm. and and he lectures him, and the book's under his pillow. At one point, Mildred feels the corner of yep. the book, and Montag's like, Shh, and she's like, oh, and um, Beatty's like lecturing him and kind of turning the screws a little bit and ra it's such a tense scene sure is so Beatty's got this description of the way books have come to be banned mm -hmm. and it's this whole like you did it all to yourselves and we just stepped in when we felt the need to does it make sense is it a convincing argument or is it or is he convincing as a person like the so it kind of a, a two-part question like what do you think of Beatty as a as a villain as an antagonist in the book yeah. and and does his argument at least in a objective logical way make sense or how could it be convincing to somebody so as a as a villain and it's hard for me to call him that I feel it because he's just gone with the foot yeah Let's call yeah him certainly to our to our Montag, you yeah. know, he's the opposite there, but he's doing what society is there to do. You know, Montag is the lawbreaker. Mm. So it's interesting to think of him that way. And he does give grace to Montag to a certain extent. He says that everyone is given, you know, I think in Family Guy, right? Spider-Man swings down and saves some. Um, 
Peter, is that his name? And says, you only get one with his web. And so it seems like, <laughs> I just remember that scene. It seems like everyone gets one, and he gives that to Montag. But, of course, Mildred had called it in. So mm-hmm. it's it's anyone's guess as to whether or not something would have happened as well. She calls it in after he reads the poem, though. Correct, yeah. So... Yeah, he might have been okay because he did give over a book as mm-hmm. and Beatty knew about that. So I feel like he's not, you know, maniacal, egomaniacal or, you know, really terrible guy. He's just mm. doing what he's supposed to be doing. With his explanation of everything, I think it's believable because no one knows different. And I think he believes it. And, and I'm sure there's like this long line of just this information being passed down from you know, chief to chief, captain to captain. And also I feel like, and I've got a question for you because there's just a big question. I think that's not really addressed, but, um, I feel like he reads a lot. His constant quoting from things, his knowledge. So if he knows, he might know the truth, but is perverting it as well. And maybe that's a privilege that some of these people in leadership have, or he's just someone like Montag who has this curiosity, but he's able because of his position to, to keep that out. But there's something like there is something about this guy that he clearly is learned. So my question, though, is how do these people even know how to read? Well, there, there's a, there's a line in there somewhere that they are allowed to read things like technical manuals. OK. And things. So reading is taught in school because okay. it does serve okay. a function in the society. But only nonfiction. But only and nonfiction. Really there's, there, yeah, there's certain things that stuff that's are, not going to excite things. Yeah, so there, there's a usefulness to reading because, um, you know, I think you know certain certain things are allowed, and, and I, technical manuals, I believe, are one of the one th- things that are they're actually uh, that are actually mentioned. Yeah. Okay. The answer is that. So my main thing is, I think he could either. There are two options here, so I guess that's all I'll say, and that'll be my non-answer. Yeah. That it's passed down, it's information passed down from heads to heads, and you just keep disseminating the information. Or he knows actually the truth because he's a huge reader, and I think there's evidence to that fact, and he is able to pervert it to go along with the company line. I think so. I think I think that that's right on. Um, I think he he does. I think he does read. Um, or he knows, uh, and and he uses whatever privilege he gets from being a posi- in a position of power to skirt the line of it's kind of being a corrupt piece a person of power, you know, that like he can kind of kind of get away with more stuff. I was trying to find a passage where he says he reads it, but he doesn't think about what he's reading. But I could have sworn that's in there, but I couldn't find it as you were talking. There's also that whole idea, like of if if you're somebody, you're right. If so you're somebody who's like really susceptible to anybody and their way of convincing you because you really have never been taught to critically think about anything, mm. then you are going to be convinced by this argument, even though you could poke holes in that argument pretty easily. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's because he's he's setting up. You know, it's, there there are certain things that he does that, you know, we see we see it in our own media, in that you know he he goes into things about uh, different groups of people like minorities and th- and 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 others about them not liking it. So he's like attacking the whole idea of political correctness, and and he is he is trying to grab onto some sort of preconceived notion that Mont or prejudice that Montag already has and then uses it to apply it to say um, some other thing that, that he has on his own agenda. And that's something that we see nowadays. It's something that pro- just prior to the publication and writing of this book you saw through Nazi Germany. There's something that, granted, I, I would teach a book, I would teach Elie Zell's Night in the same year I taught this. So we talked about propaganda and I tried to drive home to these students that Hitler, Hitler did not invent anti-Semitism, and the idea that what Hitler and Goebbels were doing were like taking a preconceived prejudice or, or an already existing piece of racism in the society and amplifying it and leading people along because they're confirming the things that they already, like they're confirming hatred that these people already have and, and, just twisting it and using it to their advantage. And Beatty is like really manipulative like that. He's trying to find the thing that Montag believes and is going to use it and twist it so that Montag will go along with him. Mm. And we, we really do see that in our media a lot. And, and if you, and if you keep paying attention to it and you keep watching it and you keep listening to it, you become more and more convinced. It's, it's essentially brainwashing. And so it's, it's in, in this case, it doesn't necessarily work on Montag because he's so upset from the woman and from what he found about Clarice that he shows Mildred, 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 the books and then goes to see Faber so it doesn't have the effect that Beatty desired, and he's like faking when he does. And then Faber essentially gives the counter argument in the very next section. So we have like point counterpoint. That's how I always presented it. I always would present the two speeches they give, and say, okay, like how are they in direct contrast with one another? Because mm. um, Faber's just this old English professor. So kind of like Alan, uh, Professor Alan. Yeah. So if, if, okay. if this is if we're casting the movie, if I'm Montag, you're Clarice. Uh, Alan is uh, is Faber. And Shag and is Beatty. I really give Shag that much credit. <laughs> well, I was trying to think of a nemesis yeah, okay, of okay. yours. Yeah, but um, but so. So Alan, Alan's sitting in his house out in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the woods or whatever, where, you know, like kind of away, but tucked away just enough from society, but he pays attention and he's got like dozens of Thomas, copies of Thomas Hardy novels in the vents of his house. And cause you know, it'd be like, you know, he has, that's a true story already. So yes, <laughs> he's just hidden them somewhere. Yeah. Um, but like, it, I love what Faber has to say because it is so. As somebody who really does believe in the First Amendment and believes in our need in our society to read and 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 read freely and and, and understand what we're reading, he he comes at just very three good points. It's like we need quality information, and and this is really important. We need the time to mull it over, to let it sit, to really consider it, and then the ability to act on it. And that second thing is something, at least, and this is where I go off on like my own social political tangent. I think that's become increasingly 
that's be, that's being cut down in our current day society more and more and more. The idea that we're not given time to think about information that's thrown at us, mm-hmm. and the, the quick the quick tweet is the thing that's valued. When a lot of times, if you if you take the time and you look and stuff, you can come up with a nuanced response to something, and you can come up with something that is a complex belief based on a very complex issue. But our our means of communication, in some ways, especially social media, are not designed to handle nuance. Yeah. So off the soapbox. Did you did you think that Faber's was um, convincing? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I mean, both of them to a certain point have have their convincing arguments, and I think poor poor Montag is caught in the middle there, but. Yeah, I I feel like Faber because he's got the backing of books and he's willing to actually open them up and use them. He's got more weight to him than Mont than Beatty, who probably has read books, but he dismisses them right away and says there's they're useless and it's just noise that we don't need. Yeah. So I wanna um go to uh, we're gonna get to the end. Of, we're gonna get to the the big, the third big third part of the novel with uh, the arrest of Montag and then the death of Beatty and everything. But before we do that, I wanted to get to the event that that sets that in motion, and that's when he gets home, mm-hmm. and uh, all the the ladies, the coffee clatch is sitting around. You know. So um, he reads this poem. I'm, I'm gonna read the excerpt. Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, by the way, is a long poem. I wrote a paper about Matthew Arnold in college. I don't. I might have quoted Dover Beach. It's his most famous comment. So this is one of the last parts, the last few stanzas, and it reads: The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here, as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. And then the next line is, Mrs. Phelps was crying. Mm-hmm. So, why this poem? Because <laughs> it's offset. It's like in italics and everything. Yeah. And then why is she crying? I think it gives voice to everything that they're feeling, but they can't put a name. I, I, it goes mm-hmm. back to your first question of this unhappiness that everyone is feeling, but they don't know that they're feeling. And, I mean, this poem, for me, is, like, very sad i think and mm-hmm. it just taught you know melancholy and all of this stuff that's going on and gives voice to what's happening in their particular world with that last line of ignorant armies clashing by night and so yeah. i think that she's listening to this and is voicing something that she has felt but has never put a name on or anything and so this unhappiness is like bubbled forth but even she probably doesn't know why she's crying yeah and I, I love the, the, the line, the, the first lines of that last stanza, I'll let it, let's be true to one another for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so very, so beautiful, by new, hath really neither, like that contrast and that, that on, like, let's be honest, it's a, 
you know the the, the sadness of the world and things and you I think you're right I think it, it really drives things home and then he goes off on the rant because right. she's just they're like you're terrible you're making us cry they're like they react they do not react of like because they don't know how to deal with it they don't they've I don't think they've ever seen each other cry they've never really shown genuine emotion toward one another in that way and if she's crying they're, they're like all scared and he says and this is just he goes go home Montag fixed his eyes upon her quietly. Go home and think of your first husband divorced and your second husband killed in a jet and your third husband blowing his brains out. Go home and think of the dozen abortions you've had. Go home and think of that in your damn cesarean sections too and your children who hate your guts. Go home and think of how it all happened and what did, what did you ever do to stop it. Go home, go home, he yelled, before I knock you down and kick you out the door. And they they leave and the door slam and the house is empty and then Faber's like you're an idiot and Mildred's all upset and um, that rant is it's like to me it's a moment where he he truly crosses like the last like event horizon so to speak like there's nothing for him to go back to after this he has fully gone into that act of rebellion because he is he is expressing emotions that he's never he has had for a long time and he's never been able to express that anger that rage inside him over what these people represent mm-hmm. i've monopolized that i i apologize no that's fine i i have nothing to add i yeah. think you you summed it up well so the the, the action movie scene is, is, oh, it's such an action movie scene. It's like we never at burn. the very end. Yeah, where, where he, um, yeah, where he, uh, not at the very, very end, but where uh, they arrest him and they take him to the the house. Oh, and he burns oh. Down the house. And yep. uh, I, like I said, he takes some serious delight in uh, to the point where it's actually kind of funny. Um, where he burns the house down, and he's taking so long because he's just it's so cathartic, right? And then, and then. Um, finally everything's down and Beatty says when you're quite finished you're under arrest it's almost like kind of a joke it, it's yeah. kind of a comedic comic relief moment for Beatty but then Beatty's talking and monologuing at him and he finally turns around to him and he says we never burned right and then turns the flamethrower on Beatty and kills him um, later on he's on the run and when he finally has a moment to think to himself as he's trying to figure out where to go he comes to the conclusion that Beatty wanted to die mm. do you think Beatty wanted to die and why or why not <laughs> that was an interesting moment when I read that that he wanted to die I guess he's getting it from the fact that he didn't he could have done something to stop him or like run out of the way potentially or like mm. but he just stood there yeah. I guess maybe Beatty wanted to die just like everybody in the society, with the exception of the people on the outskirts, wants to die mm-hmm. in their unhappiness. And maybe in his speech, Montag was able to glimpse something. Yeah. He certainly didn't, you know, he didn't act like everybody else who was wanting to die, I will say, because they all seem listless zombies Mm -hmm. just going going through the motions and everything whereas this guy he seems to have a clear purpose and he seems pretty wise you know um so it's yeah uh i 
it's hard. I I would almost say yes because everyone in that society seems to want to, but also I wonder if that's just a way for Montag to not necessarily justify, but make him feel a little better because the last time he saw someone burn really impacted. Sorry, you don't like that. Really affected him. <laughs> <laughs> really affected him, and she. I think she wanted to die, too, because if her books were gone, there was no point for her. But that was really hard for him to see. So then I would ask, what's the difference between the two of them and why was he so upset with her and not necessarily with with Beatty? And I don't think you can say, you know, he was against him and he realized he wasn't because that's too simple. I think he was still a human being. And I yeah, so that's a tough question. I don't know that I can answer it. I think it's very. It's very open. The only thing that I can think of is that Beatty is one of those people. So there's a thing where somebody is so against something, so adamantly against something, they are hiding the fact that they are secretly participating in what they are against. (laughs) Sure. It's... I'm not trying to be insensitive here. It happens. Uh, it has happened over time with people who are so vehemently homophobic. Uh. It's there that they, because they have been raised to, the, probably because they've been raised in an environment that tells them that, you know, uh, the homosexuality is evil, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, they have been raised in that environment when they discover that they, hey, you know, that they are, that they themselves are, are gay they become they double down on the homophobia because they don't want to admit to themselves or they or they're because because it'll come out like you know that somebody um the affairs come out and things like that and people turn around and go like you know yeah because they're they're so against this because they're they're masking the fact that they actually participate in it but they don't want to be seen as and, mm. and so with Beatty, the only thing I could think of is that Beatty is so vehemently of like, you know, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to enforce the rules. I'm going to have this power. And I'm so against this idea of, of books and everything because secretly he, if he wasn't yeah. so ensconced in that role, he could be Faber, you know, like he's so intelligent and he's ashamed of that. So that's the only way I could think of it working like that. Yeah. But I don't know if Montag fully realizes it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Faber could probably explain to him that to him if they got the time to sit down and talk about it. So, but they don't really get the time. They go, and I like the detail that Bradbury puts in in Montag's escape from the Hound. That he's still holding the the first one. He he kills with the flamethrower. The thing gets one shot in on him, but he's holding the flamethrower and he's able to get pull the trigger and and roast it. And then when he goes to Faber's house, they're like they take into account that like you know they're gonna they're gonna track it to Faber's house and so we gotta they burn Montag's clothes they give him Faber's old clothes like they shower him basically to to throw the scent off I liked those little details because those little details us as as geeks think of when we watch movies and things like that you know like how did he get from there to there and things like that and then we have the destruction of the city but before that we get the change like the symbolism of fire changes and it's really not a question. I just, I, I've always been struck by, and I always love the fact that at the end of the novel, he comes upon fire, and it's a campfire. 
something that we take for granted because I mean I haven't been camping in years, but something <laughs> we take for granted. But you know the idea that a fire is something you can cook over, right? And it's almost like it didn't occur to him that mm. that could ever be the use for fire because the entire yeah. novel and even at the end with the bombing of the city, fire is destruction, and here fire is life. Um, I don't really have many thoughts of that, but I do. I just wanted to say I like how Beatty, not Beatty, uh, Bradbury uses that symbolism. Yeah, and I'll. I mean, fire is such a primordial thing. It's mm. one of the things that we really need to survive. You said, you know, an element of life. I think is yeah. is that what the yeah. words you said, right? And so I think to Virgil's Aeneid, and after those poor guys have been sailing all over the place, and they finally land in Carthage, which is not where they need to be, but the first thing they do is light a fire and get food going. You know, the the two things that they need. Yeah. And so, to, yeah, to have this destruction that he's been living with, and then to show the opposite side of this essential thing. And also this fellowship almost of people gathering around it in unity rather than disunity and, and destruction, I, I think, is a, a really nice dichotomy that he's able to frame the book with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, I really don't have much to add to that. It was a really, really good, really good point. And um, and uh, and then we get the, we get that image of the, the phoenix and him kind of, which is another thing of fire, which is rebirth. And the idea that Montag is, is fundamentally changed. Um, and one little detail he adds is when he starts to remember Ecclesiastes um, and whatever mm-hmm. else it was, the thing that's not in his head anymore is the Denim's Dentifrice commercial. Because that was the, it kept getting in his head. It was like, it was yeah. the... Have was you, it just, could you explain that to me? Because I've read it a couple times. Is it just like blasting on the subway? Yeah, it's, it's repeatedly. It's blasting on the subway and then okay. it gets stuck in his head. Because it was insane in that section. Because, so, yeah, because yeah. he's on the subway and they're playing. It's just this idea that, yeah, it's, it's just playing on the subway over the PA or whatever. And it's just noise, noise, noise. Oh, the noise, noise, noise. Um isn't that a line from Dr. Seuss? Yeah, it's the Grinch. It's the Grinch. <laughs> oh, is, is that yeah. what you did that on purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, he says, so Montag remembers the book of Ecclesiastes, a little bit of revelation, um, but they eventually assign him something. They, they, they assign him a book, so like, you know, if, if this guy ever, if we ever lose this one guy, you become Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, they're going to you're going to work on on who you are. So he has a new purpose in life. Mm. And um, the Denim's Dentifrice thing always is now reminds me of. Have you seen Inside Out? Yes, I have. You know, the, the the gum commercial or whatever it is that keeps getting stuck in her head in. the. I think I think so. Yeah, yeah I think I remember this. Um, that that's what it reminds me of. Uh, it's a total, total, total earworm. But um, there's two more questions I have, and then and then we'll finish up with the you know uh, would you recommend it? Um, so there's technology in this book, and this is something I used to go over with my students. There are really four, five if you count the really fast moving cars. But we've had fast moving cars for decades. Um, there are four pieces of technology that seem futuristic in this book, written in 1953. The fireproof house, which 
we really don't have i mean we have fire safety things but you know houses still catch on fire not by the rate they used to back in the early part of the 20th century because building materials have been better but it's not like to the point where the fire department's purpose has to change the seashell radio mm. which i point out to my students and i could point out to my students today airpods exist yep the parlor walls which um we have big screen tvs i mean you could probably get a parlor wall if you wanted to you'd have to be seriously rich so it's not readily available to the working class which montag obviously is um but it the idea that you could interact with your media has become more prevalent throughout the last decade or so and then the mechanical hound which we have drones but we also i always show them the boston dynamics videos because they're developing mechanical hounds and they're creepy as anything so the idea that these things are advances are being made in this direction is really fascinating and scary do you think we're close to the same control of information and what about the general behavior of the populace in this book could you repeat your question, please. Okay. I'm very sorry. No, this is okay. the only time I'll ask. No, I was rambling. So basically, when it comes to the technology of this book, our society is really close to what's being described. Elements mm-hmm. of the, the high-tech stuff in this book we see in every yes. day. First question, how close are we to the same control of information that is Ooh. in this book? I think we're there. Mm-hmm. Now, this is... I don't like to talk politics because I feel like I'm not knowledgeable and it's also a very inciting subject. But it seems like this path, I think no matter what political side you were on, I think there was a strange control of information, whether it was false or true, that happened. And it happens with the media and it happens with the internet and i guess the media using the internet as sources but the sources are fake mm-hmm. and um so i think it's unfortunately already happening in in that sense and i think people honestly want to control and and spin the way that they want things to be perceived mm-hmm. so i unfortunately i i feel like it's happening I agree, and I will add to you because there's you know, there's an algorithm through which, like Facebook, for instance, works, um, and you and I will see things that we supposedly are interested in, but yeah. then politically, um, there are a lot of things that get re-shared and shared and shared and re-shared because people don't read enough into them to really discern whether or not they're real, and they come to believe, and, and sometimes it starts as a subtlety or a watered down thing of a lie about a polit- what a politician said or whatever. Um, or like, for instance, even going further back than that, you know, people have gotten in hot water for things they supposedly said because a YouTube video appears to them saying it. But then, but the problem is that that YouTube video is a clip and if you watch the entire, like, say they were making a speech somewhere or they were doing a presentation or they're an interview, and if you watch the entire, you don't watch the 30 seconds, you watch the entire five minutes, it's a much different message that was being sent. But the person, whoever put clipped that down, did that on purpose because they wanted you to hate that person or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. Like, you know, the way this is done and, 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 it, and it's 
I think everybody's susceptible, but there are more people who are susceptible than others to that sort mm. of manipulation because they don't think critically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, then, even, I, you know, personally, a personal anecdote, I I did not vote for either of the main candidates because I just I had no I felt manipulated by the media. I, I just didn't know what was true and what was false. And I just didn't think that I could honestly vote for either of them without knowing what was going on. So I voted for a candidate that I felt like. You know, I looked at this person mm-hmm. and their beliefs and, and all of that stuff and, and what they were for and thought, well, this is probably the one to do. So it's it's hard because I, I think even if you think critically, I mean, it's tricky. I mean, how can you sift through the, the true and, and the false stuff? And it's just like rumor and I'll bring it back to the Aeneid. It's just like rumor in the Aeneid where that her power was the fact that she had truth in there. And then you know that that's true. You latch onto it, and then she can give you all these lies. And so yeah. it's just so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Well, because and and we see Grant. We've seen spin in politics for decades, where um, an incident happens, and it's really worse now because of saying things like cable news, for instance. I don't watch cable news at all. So you know, there are people who watch nothing but Fox News. There are people who watch nothing but CNN or MSNBC. I think it's all crap. I don't watch any of it. Um, because what they do is they will get a, a pundit or a talking head on there and they will try to, you know, but this is, they will try to start spreading whatever message is because, you know, um, I don't know, uh, somebody on one side could do something terrible and they, they, their job to spin is to make it the other side's fault. You know, and, and things like that. And that's been going on for decades. But at the same time, yeah, you're right. This, this spin and, and things and the misinformation. Um, one of the things that's really telling is that they talk about the history of the firemen in there. And they talk about how, like, the first fireman was Ben Franklin or something. Ben Franklin, yep. But, but that manipulation of history and how mm. history is taught and how history is related is another thing that's come up in our society. I mean, you and I are in Charlottesville. There's been a huge debate oh, yeah. that's gotten violent over why there are confederate statues in the middle of charlottesville and um uh this so we're recording this on august 14th it's two it's two days after the two-year anniversary of the uh unite the right rally in august 12th 2017 this past weekend the washington post had a really good article detailing the history of those statues just of those statues and going back through the historic record of their dedication and why they were put up there and how it was to intimidate the African-American population. And it's a really comprehensive article and it's really good, but there's a, there's the actual facts of history and the complicated aspects of history and the complicated, the complicated parts of people in history, for instance, like Thomas Jefferson and some of the other people who were prominent figures in, in the history around here. And then there's the myths and the, manipulation that goes on to make them heroes and villains or or falsities and things like that and 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 that's something that goes on in this book as well that that's a point that you can pull out of there and then have a really good discussion with them Mm. if you were last question if you were one of the members of this nomadic group at the end, so uh, yep. so I come upon this thing, and let's say like in the movie and the and the play, you survived. So there's you, Mike, 
Don. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, Alan, the best Alan's people. on a bus to St. Louis, and we'll find him later. Because Faber, as far as we know, Faber survives the bombing at the end because he That's said right he was going to be on the bus. So we, I want to say that Faber lived. And you Unless know, this was an atomic bomb. Yeah. As I read, as I read it, I'm just like, is are they actually all dead at the end? It's they're alive. They survived the bombing. I think it was an atomic bomb, but it was they're they're so far out of the city that they're outside of the, you know. Oh, okay. I could imagine they die after a certain point from radiation poisoning. Probably, but, yeah. But let's just. I like to think that the ending is is a little more hopeful than some of the others we've seen in dystopian literature. It's actually <laughs> yeah, one of the. It's actually one of the reasons I like this more than 1984. Um, there's no hope at the end of 1984, and I understand the point of that. Yeah. I feel that Fahrenheit 451 has a glimmer of hope, no pun intended, in the ending. So we're all there. What work of literature would you choose to memorize and pass along? And if it's a, oh, if it's you. if it's from the Bible, pick a book. From oh, the Bible. interesting. Because I'm not going to expect you to to. I'm not going to expect you to memorize the entire like King James version of the Bible. Goodness. So pick a book. If if you're picking a book, if you are picking a book from the uh, the Bible, pick a book from the Bible. If if it's not the Bible, it can be anything else. I think I'll shock people and say because I think it has perhaps more inherent value than what I what people would imagine me saying. I'm going to go with John Steinbeck's East of Eden, mm. which would be hard to memorize. <laughs> Yeah, because that's a long book. 600 pages. I love that book. But there's biblical imagery there, so I get sort of a double dose. I'm trying to think of what what else I would, because, because I love The Grapes of Wrath as well. Um, East of Eden, The Grapes of Wrath are two, of, two novels that I absolutely love. I would probably go with a piece of philosophy along the lines of, like, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics mm. or something like that. Something foundational in that sort of way. And I love Nicomachean Ethics because of the whole because of at least the discussion of virtue and what virtue is and, and, and the search for virtue and, and, and how we as people should strive to achieve it and what it defines. Because I think it's yeah. a good, I think it's a really good contemplation of values and things like that. And it would help if a new society were to be built. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking practically. But I, I but East of Eden's Great End of the Graves of Wrath would be another one that I was like, yeah, I could do that too. Yeah, or the Aeneid is, yeah, mm. epic poem. That'd be great to do. Yeah. Um, I have to reread the Aeneid, and I, I will at some point, because it's sitting on my, it's sitting in my pile. Um, my 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 current epic poem of, of teaching choice is uh, The Odyssey, Mm-hmm. Which is also really good too. So, yep. Yeah. So um, I have taught this. Um, would you recommend this? Absolutely. Yeah, I would yeah. recommend it. It's the ninth grade summer read because I brought it into one of the in-service meetings, and another mm. person had was like, "Oh, look, he's reading it too." Yeah. And then someone made fun of me and said, "It's the ninth grade summer reading." So, <laughs> yes, I, I recommend it, and I would read it again. As would I. So we have some Facebook feedback, uh, a couple from Robert Ward and, and, and one for uh, a couple from uh, Gene and Alan. So Robert says his first comment, he's commenting further on Les Miserables, and he says, Stella, there have been a few animated adaptations of Les Mis, 
for anime, there is one, uh, the one I posted from 2007 and another one from 1979 or so. The one that I posted, I think, is the longer and more comprehensive version. I haven't started, sadly, however, as my work schedule is all over the place and I haven't had the time to start it. Well, I've tried to make headway over the weekends with various books and films. Uh, she, he also says he, he is glad that you mentioned the Count of Monte Cristo, or sorry, the Monte Cristo anime. He says, I saw it many years ago, and while the design would definitely give some people a headache, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. It's been a long-time favorite of mine, and I have been meaning to import the Blu-ray from the UK. So, um, I don't have much more than that. I just wanted to include that because I know the idea of, of the subject of the anime versions of some of the works of literature we're talking about came in. It popped came up, up, yep. Yeah, with, with Les Mis especially. So. All right, you've got our next one. Uh, yes, this is from Gene Hendricks on God Wolves Man Kills. He says, I finished reading this last night and listened to the episode today. You're right, it does still hold up really well. My religious takeaway is a bit different, of course. I kept thinking that if I were confronted with someone spewing that nonsense, my reaction would be, quote, your God sounds really bad. Maybe you should try a different one. (laughs) Well, yeah. And then from Professor Allen, he apparently liked the Vanity Fair episode, especially the parts where we talked about him, which was entirely too much, and Tom did it again. Yeah. This one. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> just, he keeps pumping quarters. At me. Um, anyway, Alan was very nice and sent me some comics cursed through uh, by way of Stella. They were some uh, classics illustrated books. Yes, yep, so. yep. All right, Robert uh, also commented on the God Loves Man Kills episode. He said that Tom scored another dunk on this one. I guess uh, he meant the selection. I follow the show to get exposed to works I've never read or might have been exposed to, and as it so happens, I've only read a couple of X-Men comics in my entire life, so this story is a huge blind spot. I've seen every film except Dark Phoenix at least once. Played a little of a couple of games, and I think I've seen one or two episodes of the cartoon. Screenshots of Jubilee look awfully familiar. I actually thought about which comics I could remember reading and can only think of two. I remember a few years ago reading an early issue and seeing the whole short-lived Professor X having a theme for Gene. I do remember, I, I know that like in the Lee Kirby stuff there was this sort of, because I've read that recently and it was kind of cringeworthy. Uh, moving on, he says, I want to say once I was at a Walgreens waiting for my mom's prescription to be filled and reading the entire, entirety of some X-Babies comic. I remember when they would do the X-Babies or whatever bit. I think Mojo was always involved with that, but I'm not sure. Uh, as for the comic, I liked it. I probably would have liked it more if I weren't so tired of Trump and the MAGA crowd, though. I didn't feel too lost with the team dynamics, but the political and religious zealotry just hit too close to everyday news to appreciate as much as I wanted to. I'm not sure I understand Claremont's opinion on his writing of Stryker. The novel for Battle Royale, because we had mentioned the yeah. in the Hunger Games, we mentioned Battle Royale. I think I had mentioned that I didn't realize it was a novel. Um... Because I always knew it as a movie. He says, The novel for Battle Royale came in, out in 1999 and the film like a year later. There are rumors that a remake will be made for the 20th anniversary, but sadly it will probably be mistaken as a ripoff for The Hunger Games and Fortnite, as it occasionally is. 
The film had a sequel, although it's not held up in as high regard as the first. I think all the characters are pretty great and interesting, except one who is very Terminator. The romance doesn't feel as forced as Katniss's either. So I did put Battle Royale on my Google, my not Google, Goodreads mm-hmm. to read list. I okay. haven't checked to see if our library has it, but I am on a bat- backlog, so it might be a little while. But it's it's a thick book. It's like 900 pages, I think, or it's like 600 or 900 when I saw it on Goodreads. So, uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted, Robert, if I – well, I will, but when I actually get to it. Um, I believe the movie I have somewhere on my my Netflix to watch list or something. So if I ever get around to it all, I might mention it. Streaming or disc? I don't remember. It might be on the disc. Um, I think it was streaming at one point or another, so I – it's – I remember bookmarking it somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Let me just say that. I remember yeah. hearing about it and bookmarking it somewhere. So I may get around to it. Um, yeah. So thank you. And again, um, if you have feedback on this or even a past episode, uh, please email in. Even if you've, even if you're up here and you're like, you know, I want to go back and talk about, or you re-listen to, which would be cool. Something like, I don't know, Vanity Fair or, I don't element op or in any of the other books that we've read uh we will take any feedback on any episode uh so keep it coming um but we're about to close out and we this is the same thing we do every episode we have uh, our next episode will be october so stella what are we reading for next episode yes i'm finally i finally have the holidays tom has been stealing them from me mm. And doing all sorts of crazy things that I don't agree with. So now it's my turn. You're like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm. We're finally dipping our toes into the Jane Austen waters. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> with my favorite Jane Austen novel and a satirical gothic romance. So hello, Jane Eyre. It is Northanger Abbey. Oh God, it's like the one I don't own. <laughs> You're welcome, Tom. Oh, Oh, gosh, you poor guy. I was actually talking about this to some work colleagues. I'm like, my poor colleague, he's not going to be happy at all with what I'm about to draw. I knew. I knew this was going to happen. But it's the best Halloween one I could pick. So, you know, and there's been a year gap, I think, between this and Jane Eyre. So you've recovered enough. The boo-boos are all fine. We'll be okay. Our friendship will recover. <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh, man. All right. Well, until then, yeah. Um, I'm going to go off and read about repressed white British people from the 19th century. <laughs> and uh, we will see you next time. So, th- as always, thanks for listening and take care. Yeah, and be sure to listen to your your family in the parlor as they talk to you. Yes. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two troops. That's two troops. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. 
If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.